0: You that we have this wonderful opportunity today to continue to study in the book of 1 Samuel. We thank you for all that we're already we have already learned and all that we are going to learn. We thank you for the example of this godly man Samuel and what we can also learn from the not so godly persons in this in this book. Help us to do our best to love you, obey your word, and honor you with our lives. Bless Mary as she speaks, and help her to also be able to glorify you in how she presents this material. Help us all to have receptive hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I, uh, am I on? Yeah, I'm on. I can hear myself now. Um, it's hard to see me, though, isn't it? I know, I got up here, put my stuff up here, and I go, this thing's really high. (laughs) Oh, Oh, but I wanted to do a skip for you today, but I couldn't get two volunteers to be the oxen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh well, right? (laughs) But here is our, my title today is From Donkey Kong to King Kong. So please turn in your Bibles from, that was Luann's idea by the way, I'll give, I'll give her the credit. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, please, chapter 10, we'll be going from, we'll look at 10 and 11. Oh, wrong, wrong thingy. Okay, so verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, this is Saul, we're talking about kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? And the inheritance is the, is the people, the land, the people of Israel, the nation. Uh, we see that in Deuteronomy 32.9. But uh, anointing, if for those who may not know what that is, it's a setting apart or a consecrating or inducting for a holy purpose and authorized separation for God's service. And oil represented God's spirit that would be poured out on an individual for enablement and empowerment. In Exodus, we, read, we saw in our lesson there was a special anointing of the tabernacle and everything in it and the priest with a special oil. And they were, because those things were consecrated for a holy purpose. Now, whether um, Saul was us- Saul. Samuel was using that oil or not, I, I'm not sure, but it, in that verse it said it was only supposed to be used for those things. So this may have just been olive oil or some other kind of oil. But in verse 1, for Saul, it was setting him apart as God's choice for Israel's king. So why was Saul anointed secretly well before his public presentation? Well, I think we get a hint of that in 921. If you look back just a little bit um, to the chapter before, Saul says, When Samuel says, For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all your father's household? And Saul's answer was, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest tribes of Israel? Am my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me like this? So we might conclude from this that Saul didn't think much of himself. He was from the smallest tribe, from the smallest family in that tribe. And so he was pretty insecure and probably shy, and a person who would have to be brought along slowly. His insecurity was made worse, I believe, by a weak faith in God. He was dull spiritually, and we have to remember that we're still in the time of judges, when despite the people giving up their idols, their spiritual condition leaves much to be desired, and Saul showed a lack of knowledge about the spiritual leader and judge of the whole nation. He didn't even know who Samuel was, and uh, back in chapter 9, and he thought Samuel needed to be paid to help him. So I think um, he was flawed, just like we are, and like many of the people we see in Scripture, like Abraham and Jacob and lots of, lots of flawed people. I think that's what helps us realize the Bible is true. If, it wasn't, if you were trying to impress people, you know, to get them to believe, you'd make everybody perfect, Right? But no, the Bible is filled with flawed people, and we all can learn from that. Because the New Testament says that we learn from the Old Testament. And so I think we learn a lot about, we learn a lot of lessons from those people that are flawed just like us. Um, Consequently, Saul would need time to think and to adjust emotionally to one day being king. He may have felt emotions of unworthiness a need for assurance, and a sense of inadequacy to do what God was asking him to do. And I'm sure there's many of us in this room who have experienced these same emotions when given an opportunity to serve God. Yet, he encouraged us and enabled us. And I can confess myself that when I was approached about joining this ministry, I had those exact feelings, exact ones. And then later, when they, I was approached about being an administrative leader, Again, I had those exact same feelings. But I can tell you that because of all the encouragement I get from all of you and others, um, I can tell you one of the joys of my life, besides my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, my husband, and my kids, is to serve you. And, oh, shoot. <laughs> um, yeah, and to learn alongside you and grow alongside you. So it's a joy for me, and and that's, and I think um, because we are encouraged and we have help from the Holy Spirit and we're enabled by God, then we can do these kind of things that we get such joy from, and um, and we get to serve others, and that, I think that's why we're here, right? Um, so anyway, God uses people to encourage, and so God is going to use people to encourage Saul, and um So we're going to see this when uh, Samuel talks to Saul about what's going to happen to him in 2 through 8, and you all know what that says. You've probably read it many times, and I'm going to go over it anyway, so I'm not going to read it. So Saul needed to be sure that Samuel had really spoken for God, and he needed assurance that he would have God's help in the task. So Saul will, will receive three signs from God that will encourage him and show him God will be with him. These are three divine appointments sovereignly orchestrated by God to do this. So the first one is, two men will meet Saul at Rachel's tomb as after he leaves Samuel. In Genesis 35, we read about um, Rachel, and she dies giving birth to Benjamin. That's Jacob's last son. And Rachel is his beloved wife, but she's, and then she's buried somewhere between Bethel and Bethlehem. But then these men speak the exact words that Samuel said they would. So that's a confirmation for Paul, Saul. Then the next thing is going to happen. Three men on their way to the worship center at Bethel will have, all, they're all carrying specific things. Samuel tells them that. And that he's to accept two loaves of bread from the one guy who's carrying the three. And this is significant because these men are on on their way to worship and make offerings, and this was part of the wave offering. And Saul was being presented food designated for use by one who is anointed by a priest, okay? The anointed ones were the priests. So he was uh, accepting that. So it was symbolic of Saul accepting the legitimacy of his own anointing and encouraged him to because this was another specific incident, and three, Saul will come to the hill of God. In the NIV, I think it's called the Gibeah of God. A Philistine garrison is there, and from chapter 11, we surmise that this is Saul's hometown. Saul will encounter prophets coming from a worship area, and he will join with them as they prophesy, praising God and joyfully celebrating the Lord with musical instruments. And we're going to get there in a little bit. I got pictures for you, but not right now. So verse 7, Samuel tells Saul, you are to respond accordingly at each encounter and be assured that God is with him. And then in verse 8, Samuel makes a date with Saul to meet at Gilgal at some time in the future to give him instruction from the Lord. Now, some Bible scholars believe that the tabernacle is now at Gilgal, okay, that it's been moved from Shiloh and um, Samuel is going to make burnt offerings and peace offerings at their meetings, so this could confirm the tabernacle's presence, but it's, this is not a certainty, this is just something that um, some scholars believe, and it's, the ark will still be at Kiriath-Jerim, and we know that from 1 Samuel 7-1, and it doesn't get moved till later, okay, but it's possible Samuel and Saul might have met in Gilgal sometime between verse nine and 17 to prepare for his public presentation and what he was to do afterward to begin to set up his kingdom. But so that's, there's two opinions on what, when that meeting was. And many feel that this meeting in verse eight is the one in chapter 13. But it seems from best, from best guessing from the information we have, that's two years from now from where we are, so we're not sure when this meeting is going to take place, it could be the one two years from now, or it could be one that was more recent, that was going to take place, because there's a lot, a lot of time between 9 and 17, or 8 and 17, when everybody's called a mispah, um, either way, the point is, is that Samuel is establishing the fact that the office of prophet would be superior to that of Israel's king, God's message to Israel's king and the people would come through God's prophets. The king's power would be divinely set, would have divinely set limits, and the Lord's prophets would define those limits. So that's an important thing to remember, that God is actually, the the king is actually God's representative, but the prophet is the one who has the direct word from God, and so the king is actually under the prophet. And, oh, now we're going to get to the good part. This is verse 9, when it talks about, then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. So I thought a lot about this. And so I looked up the Hebrew. Um, it says also in, King, in the King James Version, gave him another heart. So I looked up the Hebrew, and Leb is the Hebrew word, which means center of the will, even the intellect, feelings, and emotions. Meaning God was working in Saul to make him willing and able to do what he was going to ask him to do. And I think a verse that's helpful for us from the New Testament is Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you to both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, and th- meaning that you, God works in you to make you want to do what He asks, and He makes you able to do what He asks. And so that's what I think. Of, that's what I think is ha- happening here to Saul when he turns from, a, turns to leave Samuel. That that's how his heart was changed. But then we read. Remember, back in verse 6, after he meets with the prophets and and Samuel says in verse 6, you are going to be changed into another man. And so that's a a different Hebrew word, hapnik, which means change, overturn, or become. So he is enabled. I'm going to look at this here. Saul is enabled and empowered to do what was needed enablement and power from the Spirit of God who comes over Saul so he becomes like the prophets, praising and celebrating God. So I thought that was very interesting. I liked I liked looking looking into that a lot. Um, now, verses 10 through 13, this is where he does join the prophets. Um, he comes upon them. He joins the prophets, joyfully celebrating the Lord with musical instruments and prophesies with them. So this is very interesting. Uncharacteristic for him, as he is not known to be very spiritual. So they make derogatory comments, like "Is Saul also among the prophets?" Which became a proverb, right? Much like our saying, "Well, wonders never cease." Um, this is just not possible. And the and I checked into the other the other thing that was said. Now, who is their father? And th- there was not much agreement about what that meant, except that the only thing they agreed upon was that it was not complimentary, okay? So that's, we don't, I mean, don't really know what, that, what they were getting at there, but it wasn't a complimentary remark. So Paul, Samuel said in verse 6, he would be a changed man when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So let's consider who the Holy Spirit is, because it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that's coming upon Saul how he worked in the Old Testament, and how he works today. So, who is the Holy Spirit? He's the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity, which which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what does he do? In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon individuals to enable them to accomplish certain God-given tasks. So, examples, Bezalel and Oholiab, They are the two men who were commissioned to make all of the things in the tabernacle. And God gave them special gifts, gave them special uh, talents in order to do this. And it's exactly what it says. That's what it says in Exodus in your references there. Other examples from the book of Judges, Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, all were the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were able to win battles and deliver the people from their oppressors, the Israelites from the oppressors. And then in 1 Samuel 10.10, and especially in 11.6, Saul was given the disposition of a king. Leadership ability, military skill, decisiveness, and courage when he needed it. This is for when he goes to rescue uh, Jabesh Gilead. So we're going to see that happen to him The second time the Holy Spirit comes upon him in chapter 11. So the Holy Spirit gave the person the power to do what God asked or needed done. But it was a temporary manifestation, not a permanent abiding influence like we see in the New Testament. In the New Testament and today, all believers receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at the time they place their salvation that place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And there's several verses there that confirm this. And the Holy Spirit is a permanent, abiding influence indwelling all believers. So those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and he helps us. The Bible says there's a myriad of ways that he helps us. He teaches us. He comforts us. He enables us. There's a long list, but I didn't... um, bring that with me today. But if you look in your Bibles, search your Bibles, you will find how wonderful the Holy Spirit is and how important he is in our lives. And he is a person. He's not an influence or anything. He's a real person. So, I just wanted to show you this real quick. There's a picture by an artist of Saul prophesying with the prophets. And then here's another one. They're all kind of Elongated, aren't they? They're just. But anyway, just to give you a little idea of what an artist's vision was for that. And then... Um, <laughs> in verses 14 through 16, Saul talks to his uncle, and you'd say, well, why didn't he tell his uncle about it? Well, I, I just guessed. I said, well, maybe he was afraid his uncle would laugh in his face or something. Um, maybe he was thought, well, I'm supposed to wait for uh, Samuel to tell me what I'm supposed to do. I've got to meet with him and let him tell me what he's supposed to do. But I thought the most important reason why is because we read just before this, there's a Philistine garrison there in Gibeah. So if it got out that Saul had just been anointed king who's supposed to go and drive all these Philistines out, I don't think he would be alive for very long. So I think he didn't want the word to get out. Why, you know, why set himself up for, you know, being uh, chased by the Philistines out of town or whatever? Um, so that's why I think he didn't tell them. But that's just my personal opinion. So now we get to the really, the really good thing. Verses 17 through 27. So this is the public selection of Saul as the king. So this is a process, public selection process and the presentation of Saul as king. So the people are called to Mizpah. So we don't know how long that took. So there's some time that happens in there between 9 and 17. And so all the people go there. Now Mizpah has a, a, some spiritual significance to the people. It was, ironically, where the men of Israel gathered to bring judgment on the tribe of Benjamin in Judges 20 that almost exterminated that tribe. And also where Samuel prayed for them after they removed their idols and began serving God alone. And it was not far from where Samuel placed the Ebenezer Stone to to memorialize the Lord's helping them gain a victory in the battle with the Philistines. So this has significance for them. Now we have to remember, let's see, we're looking at verses 17 through 19. Now um, Samuel is judge, priest, and prophet. So now he's been put on his um, prophet mantle, and he says to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, meaning this is a message directly from God. God has delivered them from their enemies and oppressors all the way up to the battle at Mizpah itself. But then he says to the people, But you today rejected your God who delivers you, and that word in the Hebrew means an ongoing action, meaning I delivered you and I will continue to deliver you, okay, so he says I've delivered, all right, I got to go back, who, who, the God who delivers you, meaning an ongoing action from all your calamities and your distresses, yet you have said no, but set a king over us. Now we would think such a statement should be followed by an announcement of judgment. However, God is prepared to permit what is less than ideal because how else could he deal with fallen mankind, right? There's some things he permits, so God will permit them to have their king, but it will be one of his choosing. And what I mean by, so there's God's perfect will and God's permissive will. And so we see an example of this in Matthew 19 when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him about divorce. And, he, and Jesus said, from the beginning, it has been so, God created male and female. where the, And the man will leave his mother and father, and he will cleave to his wife, and we become one flesh, meaning one man, one woman, in marriage for life. But he permitted divorce. And that's why there was a, why did, he, why did Moses permit us to have, you know, give certificates of divorce, but Jesus said it was because the hardness of your hearts that I permitted it because the Lord knew how evil and hard their hearts were that those men might go and knock their wives off in order that they could go marry another, so he permitted divorce, in fact, to protect women. So that's what I'm talking about, his perfect will versus his permissive will. And so he's permitting them to have a king when it was maybe not the right time. There was going to be a king, but maybe it wasn't God's timing yet. But he's, so he's permitting them and letting them have it now. So the selection process is taken by lots. Lots were cast to discern God's choice. Uh, Proverbs 16.33 the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And they use the Urim and the Thummim, which means lights and perfection. That's the <coughs> translate, translation of it. And in Exodus 28, 30, we read that the high priest's breastplate, that's where they were. They were kept in there for determining God's will. So Samuel was priest, prophet, and judge of the nation, so he was able to use these. And an example of when they were used is um, in Joshua 7.14 when they were uh, determining um, Achan's sin, when Achan kept, you know, the forbidden things from Jericho and they were, and they were experiencing uh, the defeat of Ai. And so they came back and said, what's wrong? And God said, somebody sinned. They've taken some of the consecrated things they weren't supposed to take. And then they used the lots to determine it was Achan. And then in Numbers 27-21, Joshua Joshua was commissioned as Moses' successor with the Urim and Thummim before the high priest and the people. And the reason I think it was done this way is this was a process used many times before to make decisions for going to battle, for apportioning the the promised land into individual tribes, and the people were familiar with it and knew God spoke through it. It was divine and not human manipulation. And the second reason is... All the people would invo- be involved in viewing the selection. There's no doubt about the process. So no hanging chads. Does anybody remember that? Yeah, some young ones back there probably don't They don't remember. But anyway, there's no hanging chads. There's no doubt about um, the choice that had been made. And after the choice was made, all the people would see Saul, his physical stature and appearance. And they would feel like he looked kingly and acknowledged God's choice. So there's, there's Saul. So tall and handsome and everything, looking like a king, right? Um, so then we see in verse 25 through 27 some really, some really cool stuff because it's another encouragement for Saul. So Saul in 25 reiterates that it's Samuel who's the one in charge because he's the one who tells the people, again, how God wants the kingdom governed, and then he writes all the rules down, and he's going to place it before the Lord. And since God is now a witness to this legal document, so it's going to be before him, because he'll be the one the king and the people have to answer to if it's violated. And but our God, he is so gracious, and he provides vital information. He provides that vital information for the people and for Saul, and he also provides Saul with vital manpower by working in the hearts of valiant men who supported him and go back with him to Gibeah. So this is going to be the core of his standing army once battles begin and he's the kingdom's set up and everything. Oh, my. So <laughs> chapter 11. And so we don't know how much time has passed between what's just happened and chapter 11. But according to verse 5, Saul's already gone back to his farm. He's already gone back to to, you know, being a farmer and everything. Um, Then, let's see, we'll talk about the Ammonites. They've been harassing the Israelites forever since they uh, made the journey through the Promised Land. They have been really antagonistic towards Israel. And this chapter, if you're familiar with Judges, especially chapter 20 in Judges, this is very familiar because Jabesh Gilead is in there, Gibeah is in there, and cutting up bodies, And sending the pieces out to rally an army are in there. And I won't go into it because it's yucky. So you can go read it for yourself, all right? Um, So in verse 1, they besiege Jabesh-Gilead, and then the Jabesh-Gileadites, they just roll over, and they say, make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. You, They were never supposed to make a covenant with anybody, anybody who was not... And, you know, they weren't. Let's just put it that way. So um, they didn't have any confidence in God. And they were then told by the Ammonites, we want to cut your eyes out. So the right eyes. And this would disgrace the people and disable them as warriors because the shields were held in the left hand and it covered the left side of their face and they fought with their right. So they didn't have the right eye. They were defenseless. There was no way that they could fight. But you kept one eye. That's because you could still farm and you could still pay the tribute that they were going to demand from you once you surrendered. But see in verse 3, Nahash is so confident that that he's going to be able to conquer them. He lets them send out messages. He lets the elders send out messengers. And because he feels like Israel's so weak, nobody's going to come. Plus... He's probably heard about in Judges 21, 9 through 14, where when the Jabesh Gileadites were called to help, exact exact judgment on the tribe of Benjamin, they didn't come. They didn't come help and fight. They got punished for it severely, but they didn't come. So he may have heard about that, and so he's probably thinking, well, they're not going to come help them. But anyway, messengers arrive in Gibeah, Saul hears about it and the spirit of God comes upon him in verse 6 for the second time and Saul is filled with righteous anger. So now we'll look at righteous anger and there are times we ought to be angry but one important caveat we must not sin in our anger. Righteous anger is characterized by three things. You are reacting against actual sin. You are angry about what makes God angry. You are more concerned with the offense against God than the offense against yourself. You are expressing your anger in ways consistent with Christian character, which sometimes is not so easily done. Um, And I'll leave it at that. I can give you an example. I mean, the abortion issue is a, a real example. You can channel that righteous anger into positive things like going to work at a pregnancy center going on walks to support them, doing all kinds of things to help in that way. But the opposite of that, and it's been done in the name of the Lord, is be aggressive towards people coming to the center, being physically confrontational with them or the doctors, or or even going so far as to bomb the building. So that is the wrong thing. The other thing is the constructive positive thing, being supportive. In your, in your righteous anger. Um, okay, next. All right, here's the battle. He amassed the people. He, here's Gibeah. He calls, he cuts up the oxen, sends them all out, and says, okay, everybody meet me in Bezek. So they meet in Bezek, and he's got 300, 330,000 men. And so then they're gonna come over here. They get a three prong attack south. Straight on and then from the north Just like Gideon did In um, Judges And he does it at night It's from 2am to 6am Is when he attacks So he catches them all off guard And then they chase them all the way Down here And victory Right Um, So with that victory Came The full acceptance of Saul As king Okay, and he could lead them in battle, they could see this, and with God's help, win. Saul acknowledged that fact when he gave God the credit, so I think we see evidence of a changed heart when he did that, as well as extending grace to those who would not accept him at first. They, because they didn't acknowledge him as God's choice earlier, that was actually rebellion and treason against God, and would have suffered the death penalty, but Saul said, nope, no one's dying today because we're celebrating because we had a, a major victory over the Ammonites, and God helped us. We give him the credit. So um, Samuel then led the people to a recommitment of their loyalty to God's chosen king at Gilgal where they rejoiced greatly. So there's a picture. Oh, thanks, Lynn. There's a picture Saul in the battle to rescue Jabesh Gilead. So lessons for us today. One, when God gives you a job to do, he will supply what you need. Um, I think one of my, besides the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that's Philippians 4.13. I think the one I like, too, is the Isaiah 41.13. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. I really like that verse. God frequently defies our expectations and uses the most unlikely people to do mighty things for him, Saul. We see that today, right. But a shepherd boy, David, a captive Israeli boy, Daniel, a fisherman, Peter and Andrew, a tax collector, Matthew, and a Christian hater, Paul. So all those, God used all those people, flawed as they were, and weak looking as they were. But he used them to do mighty, mighty things. Three, three. God may use common occurrences to lead us where he wants us. Evaluate all situations as pot- potential divine appointments. Keep your spiritual eyes open. Because Saul, he had three divine appointments right there in a the row. That God orchestrated for him. To help him and encourage him. Four. Four. Don't hide from important responsibilities because you are afraid of failure, afraid of what others might think, or afraid of how to proceed. Count on God's provision through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And five, be sure to channel righteous anger, anger directed in injustice or sin, in constructive ways to bring about positive change without sinning. Ladies, I believe that is it, and I will close in prayer and take questions if you have them afterwards. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this wonderful day you've given us. We thank you for the scriptures that give us so many lessons for our lives. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that enables us and empowers us to do the things that you would ask us to do. Help us trust your provision for the things we do need for any job that you ask ask of us, Father, I uh, just thank you for these ladies and the encouragement they have been to me and the encouragement you've given me um, through the things you've asked me to do. And I'm just so very grateful. I'm grateful for these ladies and this Bible study and for your son, of course, above all else. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, any questions? Flip back one. Oh, how do I do that? Oh, I did it. Hooray. Hooray. Any questions? Going, going, gone. Yes. Thank you, ladies.